it's been kind of cool lately to, you know, we've been behind the children in the past, but now we're like right on track with them. And so it's been pretty fun, like driving home from church and the kids will be talking about what they learned in Matt Kaufman's class. And they'll be like, oh, that's what we were talking about. So we're like last week with those, uh, raise your hand if you were here last week to see those videos. Yeah, so my kids saw those videos too. And so we're just like, can you believe that? We're just geeking out about all the information. Um, yeah, that was just really, really interesting stuff. And so that's part of what we're going to, we'll do a little bit of review from last week. I'm going to try not to bore you guys every week with too long of a review. The, the main question, one of the main questions we're going to try to get into this morning, hopefully you saw the email last night, um, is does God use imperfect people to accomplish his plans? Does he? Well, that's a good thing. Otherwise, none of us would be useful. Uh, but we see that in our text today. Um, in our parafamily ministry, as you guys know, we're going through the seven seas of history. The lesson today is called God Calls Moses. Part of our quarter called God is in control. And boy, we are sure seeing that, um, that God is in control of history. And so that's just jumping off the page in every lesson. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of review, study a couple texts from Exodus and hopefully make some good application. In the past, we've, we keep emphasizing the authority of God's Word. Really cool to look at that archaeology stuff last week. But even if we didn't find archaeological demonstration for every single passage of Scripture, we still depend on the authority of God's Word because it comes from God Himself, and it's without error because God cannot lie. He's preserved it for us. Still gives us responsibility to preserve His Word, but He is also sovereign in His preservation. Sola Scriptura, cry of the Reformation. Uh, we've been encouraging the proper hermeneutic, literal, historical, grammatical. We will continue with that throughout the class. Exegesis, not what? Eisegesis. And then as we apply the Bible to all of life, we know that the Bible is not a science book, but where it does talk about scientific things, we would say we want to have a biblically influenced geology. Bible talks about a flood, so that should affect our geology. We're seeing God's sovereignty in history. We're not just talking about his, historicism that just says history just happens randomly. Um, we're seeing that God is actually in control of history, and we've seen that in uh, Genesis and now the Exodus passages. Um, and then last week, we introduced this concept of traditional chronology of the history of Egypt versus uh, a, uh, a reformed uh, approach to the history of Egypt. And while it was Dr. Downs that was doing the video last week, a lot of his research is coming from an archaeologist named uh, David Roll. And, um, and so <clears throat> the concept is just like we see in actually several different cultures, um, Israel and Judah would be an example, is you have overlapping kingdoms. Um, uh, this research says that there's overlapping dynasties in Egypt, and that the reason that uh, traditionally when you turn on your National Geographic story, or, yeah, story, uh, mythology, <clears throat> they say that you don't find any evidence of uh, the Exodus, you're not finding evidence of Jews uh, in Egypt, 
uh, Dr. Roll and others would say it's because they're looking at the wrong time period. So last week, <coughs> we looked at a, a couple pieces of information just by way of review. Um, in 1966, uh, there began to be an excavation of a place called Tel Eddaba in uh, the eastern delta of Egypt. And according to this excavation, which has taken quite a long time, that people aren't knocking down their doors or knocking down the doors to get to digs of this type. And so it's taken a while to dig it and to evaluate it. Uh, but there does seem to be evidence of a large Semitic-speaking population in this area that lived there during the 13th dynasty. Uh, does anybody remember any of the evidence <clears throat> that was presented last week with this particular dig of what were some of the things? Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah, so they've got um, several of the houses have these boxes that are buried before the b below the floors and and babies in the boxes two and three deep, um, which would definitely suggest, you know, something traumatic is going on during that time period. Anything else that you guys remember from that particular day? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, so there's evidence that they just left all their stuff. It would almost be like, um, we were talking about this earlier this week in another lesson. I don't know if, if you guys remember your American history when uh, FDR signed, uh, I forget the term, but 9066, uh, basically that made Japanese citizens on the West Coast potential threats, and then they were given a very short period of time. That Kumi was telling me, I guess his dad, if he remembers correctly, they had about a week to gather their belongings. They, it was only what they could carry in their hands, and then they just had to leave their stuff behind. So if you were to walk into a Japanese home, <coughs> you would just see all of their stuff there, um, and you would come to the conclusion, these guys left in a hurry, right? Uh, they were not given much time to get out and get to the various... Uh, internment, what has, what's the word, internment camps, Manzanar, and so on. And so the same type of thing here is archaeologists are looking at the homes and, re and seeing that type of evidence that these people had left fairly quickly. And so that would put Moses being born during the reign of Amen, Amenemhet, Amenemhet III. I'm not real good at my Egyptian pharaoh pronunciation um, so he'd be the last pharaoh of the 12th dynasty reigning for 46 years um, this pharaoh had no sons to inherit his throne which could explain why he might accept moses as a future heir <clears throat> i like the weasel words when it comes to this kind of stuff could mean might mean because we really don't know for sure right um, these are just kind of trying to reassemble the evidence and um make some educated guesses. <clears throat> so that's a little bit um, from last week. Let's see if there's anything else that we want to talk about. No, nope, let's go ahead and let's open in our Bibles, first of all, to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to read uh, these 10 verses in their entirety. And then we're going to make some observations of the text. And then we're going to try to draw some conclusions from the text. 
And every time I read this material, it's just fascinating. Okay, starting in verse 1, Exodus 2, I'm reading from a New King James. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. I think we're going to, I'm going to do ask some questions and do some running commentary as we read through the text, if that's okay. It's a little easier for me than trying to remember everything that we just read. But So in verse 1, <clears throat> uh, where did the the married couple, what tribe did they both come from? Yeah, there we go. Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, personally, I don't think that means that if he was ugly, she had to turn him over to Pharaoh. <clears throat> but, you know, all mothers think their children are beautiful, right? So she looks, oh, I can't give up this child. And um, you guys... Uh, everybody has memories of seeing your child for the first time, right? I just remember uh, all my children were born C-section, and I saw all of them born. And so I just remember, uh, first of all, I just remember seeing my wife opened up on the table. That was quite an experience. And then, but I remember Sam coming out. No, no, Josh. And the thing that hit me was, he looks like my dad. It just shocked me. I had no, there was... I don't, I don't know why that never occurred to me that he could possibly look like my dad. and But when he was born, I, I, I was just shocked by it. And then when Anna came out, I was like, she looks like my mom. I just, both times I was just completely shocked. Um, okay, verse 3. <clears throat> so she, she hides. Um, at, this, at this point, we don't know what his name is. It's not Moses, right? We'll find that out later. We're not really sure what is what he would have been named. But in verse 3, when she could no longer hide him, why would she not have been able to hide him? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, making a lot of noise. Um, she took a, an ark of bulrushes uh, for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, the sister's pretty young at this point, but do you guys, do we have any evidence later on of who the sister is? Yeah, we've got Miriam. So, so Miriam's hanging out. <clears throat> so notice what's different here in verse 3 compared to, say, uh, the prince of Egypt movie yeah yeah she went floating down the river with crocodiles trying to jump out and <clears throat> and eat the baby and lo and behold it kind of eventually the ark kind of comes into this peaceful area where um, the princess is bathing no she just <clears throat> she goes and she actually puts it in in a pretty I guess what you think of as a safe area by some reeds calm water and just kind of waiting to see if anybody's going to come along. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, hoping that would, hoping something, I don't know what she's thinking, but hoping that something's going to happen. Yeah, but definitely the sister, you know, probably underneath, we're guessing, but probably in being instructed by mom is hanging out, watching to see what's going to happen. Verse 5, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, to bathe at the river, 
and her maidens walked along the river, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Um, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So <clears throat> the baby weeps. She's got some options here, you know, as, especially as the, as the daughter of Pharaoh. She definitely knows the edict and, um, and, and looks and sees the baby, knows this is one of the babies <clears throat> of the Hebrews, and realizes right away, put two and two together, what's happened here. There's a, a mother who's trying to save her baby. The baby's crying. And, and so she has compassion upon the baby. <clears throat> Mothers feel this. Fathers feel this when you, feel, you hear your baby crying. And you know the different types of cries, right? And when I, when, before we had any children, um, that made no sense to me. But then after we had children, you could tell, as the, especially as they, as they get older, <clears throat> that's a cry that means somebody took a toy away from somebody else, right? That's a cry that means I fell down and scraped my knee. Or that's a cry that says, I'm tired, I need a nap, right? You just get the feelings. But, and, um, you know, as parents, but, you know, you, you have compassion. And then you, obviously with, with other people's kids, sometimes you have compassion, Right? Sometimes you're in the middle of Denny's hearing somebody else's kids, and you're not, you don't have so much compassion. Uh, before Katie and I, this is kind of off the su subject, uh, but before Katie and I had our own kids, I can remember us sitting in restaurants just being very high-browed about other people's crying children. And, man, when we have children and we come to a public restaurant, we will not allow them to cry, and we will have, have them in control. And then once we had our own kids, um, the Lord gave us a great amount of, or much more humility. I wouldn't say a great amount of humility, but much more humility. One, one final sideline. I used to be a dog person. I, I hate to admit this, but my, my kids have started feeding cats. And so we've inherited cats, at least two main cats. And there's actually a compassion that begins to rise up in my heart when I hear them meowing for food in the morning. I never thought that would ever happen to me. But I wake up in the morning, the, the cat hears me get up, hears us get up, and all of a sudden starts meowing. And I've always hated cats. Well, actually, I, I used to always say I love cats. They're delicious. But, <laughs> but now there's something rising up. And so some sort of compassion rises up in the heart of, of Pharaoh's daughter here. And so in verse uh, uh, 7, uh, then his sister, so this would be uh, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Hey, uh, by the way, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maidens went and called the child's, or the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Uh, just uh, <clears throat> an amazing turn of events, really. You're thinking that your child's going to die. You put your child out in the river, 
all of a sudden, you know, Pharaoh's daughter finds the child. You can imagine Miriam thinking, just wondering what's going to happen. She hasn't read Exodus 2, right? This is happening to her. And so she doesn't know if the, <clears throat> if the daughter's going to just tell the maidens to dump, the, dump it over and dump the baby in the river, or she's going to take the child. But then to be able to, for the mother to suddenly be able to nurse her own child after wondering whether uh, the child was going to survive and then get paid wages to do it, <coughs> uh, the Lord is just providing here in amazing ways. Um, so you can just imagine the joy. But I wonder uh, what must have been, what her emotions must have been to take Moses to um, Pharaoh's daughter and, and turn over her child now to a pagan Egyptian. Um, <clears throat> in one sense, probably Moses was being homeschooled, right, for the first several years of his life. And then she has to go over and basically just turn him over to the pagans and just trust the Lord. You know, here's my child. Raise him in the education of the Egyptian gods. And then so she just gets to sit back and and pray and pray um, that God is going to to raise him up and use him. And uh, so pretty some pretty amazing things. Let's go back and just rehearse a couple things here. Um, let's see if we've hit everything. Um, so if the daughter of Pharaoh was actually the daughter of this particular um, this particular Pharaoh that we're talking about, Amen Emhet, that would make her. Uh, Sobek Nefru, Sobek Nefru. Is that in your guys' notes at all? Do you guys see anything in there in Sobek Nefru from last week? Okay. And um, <clears throat> and so last week there was the suggestion, and again this is just a suggestion that yes, she came down to the river to bathe, uh, but if this was Sobek Nefru who was not able to have her own children. Um, Last week, we suggested that what kind of bathing might this have been? Yep. Yeah, so perhaps coming down, it's a ritual washing to the fertility God and uh, hoping to have a child. <clears throat> perhaps, again, this is kind of weasel words, perhaps that's part of what God was doing. Uh, she sees the child, perhaps sees this as a provision from the God I don't know if it's happy or hoppy. Um, and so we see definitely God's sovereignty, don't we, in this, in this whole story. And just think of your own, your own life. If you've, uh, I'm assuming that probably the vast majority of you that want to be here at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning are born again. And so think of your, your own testimony and just how God has woven things together. Um, to allow you to get saved and have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Um, I know for me, um, I've, I've shared some of my testimony, but, you know, we were living in Bakersfield with my mom for a time. Um, some crazy things went ha happened there to where we ended up with my grandparents up in Bishop while my dad was, there was a 
change of custody because of some of the craziness. And so up in Bishop, we started going to this good news club. My aunt was taking us to a good news club, and we were hearing the gospel on a weekly basis. And so I'm hearing the word. I didn't get saved. Uh, None of us got saved at that time. But then eventually we come down to live with my dad, who's not a believer. And he hires a babysitter, a live-in babysitter. And we were not the most well-behaved children at that time, so much so that this babysitter quit. And the second babysitter quit. And so finally he uh, interviewed an, an older, crusty Christian gal who's, who'd been a nanny for her whole life. And um, she had another job that was going to pay her more money. And, but my dad was just like, please come work for me. I can't give you as much as they're going to give you, but would you please work for me? And she said, if you let me teach the kids about Jesus and the Bible, I'll come work for you. And he said, as long as you don't talk to me about it, that's okay. <clears throat> and so she said, deal. And so she came in and, and moved in with us and began teaching us the Bible every day. And my dad allowed it to happen. And, and so that's where we began to be, come underneath the influence of the gospel. And then a week before she moved out, I became born again. And then my parents were like, what in the world did we allow? <laughs> Yeah, they thought I was involved in a cult for a while because I wanted to go to church. I was reading my Bible at 14. I was in my room playing my guitar, singing, and they're like, what in the world? He's joined a cult. He must, he's, he's, you know, I think, uh, I can't remember if it was my dad or my mom, but they actually asked me if I was on drugs because I was singing and playing my guitar in my room. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's funny. but all of this stuff, it's like you look back and it's like at, at certain points, you would just be like, what in the world is going on? But the Lord had his hand on the whole thing and he was bringing us into direct contact with the gospel. And, um, you know, and then later on, Melissa and Michelle both get saved and now Matthew's over here teaching. And and so the Lord is, has been good. Um, any questions you guys have about this particular text? Um, I think we've done. I've I've done what I wanted to do with it. Any questions you guys have? All right, let's open up now to chapter three. Bef- and kind of in between, what we're skipping over here is. Uh, between that text and the text we're going to jump into right now, Moses gets raised in the school of the Egyptians, but he there's we don't know exactly how it happens, but he seems to retain some aspect of his Hebrew heritage, right? Because by the time he hits, from what Stephen tells us way over in Acts 7, once he hits around 40 years old, um, he's looking out and he's seeing the injustice. He's very bothered by the way that his people is being treated. Now, it could be that he still had ongoing contact with his mom and, and family. Um, he must have been old enough to have some memory of that he wasn't necessarily Egyptian. Um, there's no evidence of any of the sibling rivalry that you see in the various movies and stuff like that. Uh, but he does look out and he sees 
an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he looks this way and he looks that way, and then he kills the Egyptian, bury him, buries him in the sand. So we've got um, a major leader of the Jewish faith starts off his career as a murderer. Um, it's not like he went to the authorities or reported. He just murders a guy and buries him. And then, as you guys know the story, the next day, the word has got out. And, and then I had forgotten this part of the text, but the text actually says that Pharaoh is trying, goes after now to kill him. So Pharaoh wants to bring justice and apprehend him and have him killed. And so, so he takes off, ends up in the land of Midian, comes into contact with Jethro or Rule, and then marries Zipporah, starts his own family, becomes a shepherd. And him becoming a shepherd right there, that tells you something about how much he's kept his Hebrew heritage. Because if you guys remember, are shepherds well-liked by Egyptians? No. So if he had totally been assimilated to Egyptian culture, I can't imagine him becoming a shepherd. Um, so he, he does go out, he becomes a shepherd. <clears throat> and that's where we pick up the story now. And so let's... Uh, Let's take a look at Exodus 3, and we'll make some running commentary here. And feel free to stop anytime if you have questions or uh, commentary yourself. So uh, we'll, let's look at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. But we're not exactly sure. We would, we're not really sure what kind of priest he would have been. Um, but he is a priest of some god. We're, we're not sure if he would be a priest of the god of Yahweh. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. Horeb, what's the other name that we see in Scripture for Horeb? Yeah, so Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. I want you to keep an eye on this angel of the Lord stuff as, we, as we're moving through the text. So he comes upon a bush, it's burning, it's not being consumed. That would be a pretty amazing sight, right? And so then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now, up in verse 2, who is in the bush? The angel of the Lord. Yeah, the angel of the Lord is, is the one that is being said to appear to him in the bush. Um, in verse 4, who is calling to Moses from the bush? Yeah, God. And so this is part this is part of the mystery of this this angel of the Lord that shows up. We it seems like we saw this back in Genesis when you had three individuals that show up to talk to Moses, I mean uh, Abraham, right? And then two take off, but then the Lord hangs back. And so there seems to be this mixing together of the angel of the Lord with the Lord. Theologians would refer to this as what we would call a theophany, or even some would call it a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Um, 
And so the angel of the Lord does seem to be identified as God himself. And so here we, if we look at, um, so then Mos- or Moses says, here I am. Then verse 5, he said, do not draw near the place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. This seems to be the universal reaction when people receive direct divine revelation. We read through the text of Scripture, and as you're reading through chapter by chapter, it all comes so fast you would almost get the impression that God appearing in direct divine revelation just happens all the time. But by people's reactions, you can tell this does not happen all the time. Um, this is uh, an unusual occurrence. And many, in, like in Moses' case, he's afraid. And many times people are afraid that they're going to die. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land uh, to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Uh, where have we heard this kind of language in the past? Yeah, in Genesis, particularly, you know, who would have received kind of an initial promise like this? Yeah, so Abraham is being promised to be brought into a land. And so Abraham does receive part of the promise and the fact that he has a child and then uh, his family does begin to multiply. But way back, if you guys remember, I think two weeks ago, God had prophesied to Abraham back in chapter 15 that your people, is gonna, they're going to be taken away into captivity. They're going to be there for a time, but then I'm going to bring them back. Now, what do we do with the idea that God is saying, I'm going to bring you back to this land that... Uh, that's flowing with milk and honey. and um, But he's acknowledging that currently this is the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and so on. That God is basically calling him into a land that is currently occupied. What do we do with that? Is this just um, kind of age-old ethnocentricism? where you've got one people just coming in to dominate another people, and Israel's just writing their mythology, their meta narrative to say we have rights to that land, and God has basically given it to us, and so we're going to come in and take it by force. Yeah?
Yeah, so Dan's basically saying that this God's in control. God is doing things within a certain time frame, and he's the one that ultimately is in control and owns the land, and so he's given it to his people. And we have to accept it because it's God's word. Yeah, and I'd, I'd agree with that largely. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, God's judgment, God was going to use Israel to bring judgment upon uh, these lands. Yeah. And, yeah, we have lots of evidence, both in, in Scripture and, and outside of Scripture, of the types of atrocities that the Canaanites and these other peoples were committing. Um, you know, the destruction, you know, killing their own babies, burning their babies, offering them to Molech, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Which, which really kind of, <clears throat> it raises the question of worldview. You know, in what, what we often hear when we're taking courses of history and whatnot is, is that you have this idea um, that pe- there's just this historic- historicism and you have one group of people that's just coming in to dominate another people totally unjustly that and there's no sense of control or reason or rhyme. It's just d- domination. And then a particular people gets cast in a certain light. Um, there's a, a book I read several years ago that had to do with the uh, Incas, the Aztecs, and the Mayans. And, and this particular book was written from a perspective that was more... Uh, the traditional view of each of these tribes before kind of a reconstruction view that developed in the mid 20th century of the Aztecs, Mayans, and and Incas. And so they're drawing upon a lot of older sources. And um, and I remember reading through the material and and found it very compelling. And then one of my buddies, uh, Saul Aguilar, he's a good friend, but he he knows a lot about um, Mexican history. And as I was talking with him about some of this material, he was like, that is, you know what, that is right on. And basically the approach was is that the Spaniards and the conquistadors, when they came to Mexico, the traditional Mexican view of that history was this was a good thing, that the Aztecs were a, they were a terror to the, to the land. Everybody was an abject fear of the Aztecs. I mean, these were not a today. If you take a course on 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 Aztec history, they're going to cast it as as something like, hey, you know, we think of them as being so terrible and bad, but that was their culture. These people would they would hunt down other tribes, kidnap man, woman and child and their God, Quisicotl, would they would take a child up to the top of one of their pyramids and the more tears of fear they could get out of that child before they ripped his heart out, the more um, pleasing it was to the God. So imagine, I mean, just day after day, we're talking about every day bloodshed, hearts being ripped out of children to their God. That's the type of stuff multiplied that was going on as far as what we can tell with the Canaanites, the Amorites, and so on. Um, Just 
that type of offering to their gods, not to mention all the crazy sexual immorality that comes with the pagan system. It's one of the reasons, if you look at some of the reasons why Mel Gibson made his movie Apocalypto. Has anybody ever seen any of that, Apocalypto? Yeah, his burden in making Apocalypto was to demonstrate what the Aztecs were really like (laughs) and to try to build some compassion for some of the other tribes in the area and why the other tribes were so willing to align themselves with the Spaniards. And so what you hear today in a lot of the secular approaches to Mexican history is that the the conquistadors and the Spaniards were these terrible people. And I mean, in every culture, there's going to be nobility and depravity. So we're not saying that the Spaniards had no depravity and no false motives and stuff like that. But there's a reason why everybody was very excited (laughs) that they showed up. All that to say, when God, in his sovereignty from a biblical worldview, is saying, I am going to bring you into this land to move them out because they have, in the, in the terminology that's used in Deuteronomy, they have polluted the land with bloodshed. Uh, he is ra- waiting for the sins to fill up of the land. Uh, this last week, I had a kid who is delivering an apologetics card on environmentalism. It is environmentalism in conflict with Christianity. And he went and he quoted Deuteronomy about pollution and said, yeah, the Bible says that we should not pollute the land and throw trash around because Deuteronomy says that if we pollute the land, God's going to remove you from it. And I said, you know what? That's really good. I'm glad you brought that up. You misunderstood pollute there, but you brought up an interesting thing. What's the kind of pollution that God really, really cares about? Bloodshed, sexual immorality. That's the kind of pollution where God's going to remove people from a land and that's what's that's what we see going on here uh, with the Hittites Perizzites and Hivites okay none of that I just said I'll charge you for that's all free okay so uh, verse 9 um, wait where are we at I've lost track is it verse 9 okay so now uh, therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them Uh, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, so he's going to use God is going to he's always a he's always using uh, uh, what's the word? He's a God of means, and so the means that is being used here is Moses. And as we know the story, this is the first time Moses is hearing this stuff. We know that he's going to start making excuses. And we can chide him for making excuses. But if we're really trying to put ourselves in his shoes, right? He's left a place where he's known, he's a known murderer. Pharaoh was, he's got a death warrant on his head. He's living now as a shepherd with his family, Zipporah and his kids. And he's enjoying the good life. Why in the world is he going to go back to a place where he has a death warrant? And, and do this stuff that God is, is telling him to do, not to mention just the, the crazy bigness of the thing that God is talking about. And so, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Two objections. I'm going to go to Pharaoh. So the objections, it doesn't seem like the objection would be, I'm going to go to Pharaoh because I've never met him. 
right? I mean, he was part of his family. <clears throat> it's, I'm going to go to Pharaoh, this guy who wanted to kill me. Um, and, and I'm going to try to, to bring out your people. Verse 12, and he said, I will certainly be with you. This is God's response. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I don't know about you, but that if I'm in Moses' shoes, I don't know that that really assures me. I mean, yes, God's going to be with me. Okay, you're, you're in a bush that's not burning. That's pretty good. But here's the sign. You're gonna, I'm going to come back after this ordeal's all over, and I'm going to serve you on this mountain. Okay, let me give my other excuse. Then Moses said to God, verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, Who, uh, What is his name, and what shall I say to them? Now, some people see this as an excuse. Some people see this as just Moses asking another question. Personally, my read, you guys might feel differently, is that Moses is just, he's just raising just about everything he can to get out of this deal. You know, it's kind of like uh, when I tell my son, Sam, this is a, doesn't even match the level of intensity. But, if, you know, for the sake of argument, just bear with me. I tell Sam it's time to go to bed at night. And what happens? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Can we go jump on the trampoline? Let's, uh, can you tell me a story? There's about six, seven things. And I'm normally willing to fulfill about two or three of them, right? <clears throat> but he's, but here Moses is, this is a huge deal. So, but God says, I am who I am. And uh, he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There's a ton that we could say about just God calling himself I am. We'll come back to that in a moment. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you. That's the same language that's used back in Genesis 15. And you, and seen uh, what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's not cow milk, by the way. It's talk, probably talking about goat milk. Then... They will heed your voice, and you shall come, and you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt, and you shall say, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you uh, shall not go empty handed for every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells uh, near her house, articles of silver articles of gold and clothing and you shall put them <clears throat> on your sons and on your daughters 
and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So here Moses is getting the full uh, foreshadowing from the Lord. God's just telling him blow by blow, here's what's going to happen. Uh, which is interesting because it, it doesn't always happen that way. When Jesus called the disciples, he just said, follow me. And then they just kind of learn about things as they're traveling along with Christ. But here, uh, the Lord, for some reason, gives Moses a total foreshadowing of what's going to happen. You're going to go, you're going to talk to them. They're not going to listen or Pharaoh's not going to listen and so on and so forth. Um, so let's let's uh, make some observations and draw some conclusions uh, from the text here. We see a, a number of different attributes of God that seem to uh, flow out of the text. One is just the idea that God tells Moses to take his sandals off his feet and the fact that Moses is terrified when he first comes into contact with the Lord would seem to speak of God's holiness. The idea of his moral separateness, but also <clears throat> the essential idea is difference. Holy, holiness definitely does have the idea of, of moral separation, uh, but the big idea is separation and distinction. Um, and so we see right in this context what we would call the creator-creature distinction. And this runs throughout the whole Bible. So one of the ways to define holiness would be there is a difference between us and God. God is God, and we are not. And Moses feels that uh, there's a real sense of fear that comes over him because of that. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as we're reading the scriptures and as we're teaching in our classes here at Cornerstone, trying to disciple children and so on, is there really is such a thing as a creator-creature distinction. And, and we as Christians, we believe and we affirm um, the philosophy of what's called dualism. Dualism. That God created the world and he is separate from and not to be confused with his creation. The culture that our kids are growing up in, when I say kids, I'm talking about college age and down, the millennials, um, they are breathing the dogma of monism. There is no distinction between God and the creature. That either we are divine ourselves, and we just need to look within to find the divinity, or in an atheistic sense, there is no divine. And so we're all, we're just ultimately all one with creation. So it's, it can be, Peter, Dr. Peter Jones separates it into this. Uh, he tries to simplify it by saying there's oneism and twoism. Christianity, if you look at Romans 1, Paul talks about God is the creator of all. And he's put knowledge of himself in his creator, in his creatures. But we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, denied God, and we worship the creature rather than the creator. And so all worldviews can basically be summarized in a, in a lack of the acknowledgement of the holiness of God, that there is no creator-creature distinction. There's no separation. We are God or there is no God. And when you look out at our culture today, 
Um, that explains a lot of what is going on today and why uh, there are so many issues <clears throat> that seem to be just a denial of this dualism. When you look at Genesis 1, what do you see? From the very be- in the beginning, God created. So you have God separated from his creation. Then you have light and dark, day and night, water and land, animals and humans, male and female, parent and child. Throughout the narrative, there's this dualistic system, which also involves us moving in history towards an end, what we call a teleological end, where there will be a separation at the end of history between heaven and hell. That's the way the Bible rolls. And so and it's all built upon Genesis one. God created in the beginning. God created. In fact, Dr. Peter Jones says that verse the rest of the Bible is just a commentary on Genesis one one. And um, today, what are we seeing? We're seeing a rejection of the binary. The vast majority of people in just local churches that I talk to binary is a strange word. Walk on a college campus today, and everybody knows what binary means. Binary is something that's been enforced from our culture. It's a, it's a paradigm that has been enforced on this Western culture upon us. It's a falsified view that we need to reject. Ultimately, what they're rejecting is holiness. And, uh, and, so, for, and so that's why people today are rejecting the gender binary. And they're not rejecting the gender binary, meaning male and female, in a vacuum. This is a complete move from dualism to monism. It's a complete move from Western Christianity. In 2009, Newsweek came out with an article that basically said that the United States is now Hindu in its overall philosophy. What do they mean by that? That we are now Hindu in our philosophy. It means we have now, we've, yeah, we're all one. The big idea is all religions have pulled a piece of the pizza and we all have part of the truth. But if we can bring the pizza back together, we'll have the whole truth and we'll find total unity because really we're all divine and we just need to look within to find the divine. There's no creator creature distinction. There's no holiness. And so here here on right here in this text, we see a creator creature distinction between God and Moses and that God is going to go in and pull his people out who are separate from another people called Egypt that's a pagan people. And then he's going to bring them out and prepare them to go in and move another group of pagans out of Israel. And the Bible portrays this as good, that there is a distinction between those that worship God and those that don't worship God, whose ultimate end is in some sort of crazy immorality. Not that everybody is going to be as wicked as the Canaanites and burning their babies, but that... Ultimately, a separation from God leads to destruction. Yep, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Barbara has mentioned an article that indicates that if we call Christ just our friend, and that's the only way in which we think of him, we're actually diminishing Christ and contributing to this monistic view. Yeah, I, I think there could be some validity to that. Um, w- however, we do know that God is transcendent, and he is the great I am you know, that's in the bush, and we have this sense of holiness. But he has chosen to bridge the gap, which doesn't blend us. We don't all become one like with nirvana. But he does visit us, and it does seem like there is a category of calling him friend. But like you said, you are my friends if you do whatever I ask, right? So it's a unique friendship. You know, I would never walk up to you guys and say, hey, I'll be your friend if you do whatever I ask. (laughs) I can't do that because I'm a creature. I'm just a creature. But Jesus isn't merely 100% human. He's also God. And so he can walk up to his creatures as a man and say, I'm your friend if you do whatever I ask. You know, so that's the creator-creature distinction. He can do things that we simply could not do, right? Otherwise, it would be a complete contradiction. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bob saying in Genesis three, the temptation was take this fruit and you will be like God. God. God has something he doesn't want to let you have. You'll be like him if you participate in in the tree. So, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out on this whole dualism, monism thing. Uh, I've been studying it all week. And then, and then kind of s- just around the topic of holiness here and, and, and seeing the distinction between what God is saying, uh, telling Moses to do. Um, I encourage you guys to, to maybe investigate that a little bit. Um, what kind of got me into it this week, and then we'll have to end, is uh, the students in the apologetics class are studying the topic of transcendental meditation. Is transcendental meditation in conflict with Christianity? And I was just thinking, well, transcendental meditation, I don't know how, what a big deal that is, but I know it's, it, it, I know it's not right, but I don't know what it is, but um, let's go ahead and study it. And then the more we were studying it this week, I had no clue what a big deal this thing is. Um, it's everywhere. Um, we watched a video this week that starts off with Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen Generis, Clint Eastwood, and a bunch of other Hollywood stars all saying they do transcendental meditation. It's great. I've been doing it for 40 years. It's helped my life. It's scientific. Uh, here's all the ways it's going to benefit you. And then you start really researching this stuff, and it's all based on monism. You know, that there is no distinction between us and God. The divine is inside. You're trying to clear your rational self so that the divine can come out and wander around and really bring you into your true creativity. And um, and Peter Jones, Dr. Peter Jones, he's the guy that's really done all the big work on this. That's the conference I attended a couple weeks ago, The Two Loves. And, And he sets the whole thing that we're dealing with, with homosexuality and gender and stuff like that, that's just the fruit of this larger cultural move that has happened. His, I'll end with this. He, he, his, he tells his testimony that he grew up with John Lennon in England. They, they hung out together. They grew up on the same street. They played music together. Um, <clears throat> the reason that he didn't end up following in John Lennon's steps is John Lennon 
was allowed to go to clubs and his parents would allow him to go to clubs. So John Lennon grew up and joined the Beatles. He grew up and became a theologian. <laughs> and so, um, but he came over from England to the United States in 1964 and he thought he had died and gone to heaven because he, he was coming from Europe that had rejected God largely and, and was in total full, the full throes of secularism and comes over to the United States, and the United States is, is still predominantly a culture that is imbibing a Christian worldview. Not perfect, but, but Christianity is, is everywhere. And so he comes over, and he's just like, man, this is amazing. And he studies, he goes to school here. Then he goes back, and he teaches in France, in his words, pagan France. And so he's there for about um, 27 years comes back to the u.s in 1991 and he says i thought i had died and gone to hell he goes i could not believe how the united states culture had changed in 25 years and he began to just study and try to figure out what is the essence of the change why did it go from this to where it was in the 1990s and now it's only advanced and his bottom line what he's what he's the conclusion he's come to is Romans 1 is that our culture was largely built upon a creator creature distinction but just like like Moses or uh, Paul demonstrates in in chapter 1 that we've gone the way of virtually all of the other what most cultures do when they depart from God is they suppress the truth and the righteousness but they begin to worship the cr- creature rather than the creator we've moved from dualism to oneism twoism to oneism and so and then he documents that <clears throat> through many different sources. And he, he mentioned a book by a guy named Goldberg. I think it's Peter Goldberg called American Vader. And in this book, American Vader, he tries to document how the, uh, the United States, while, while the average person on the street wouldn't say I'm Hindu, he, he documents how that the United States is largely now Hindu in its thinking. Uh, and he gives several different examples of that and how that people just they don't recognize it. They don't really even think about it. Um, we 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 were talking about yoga and I know I could step on toes here. We, we end up talking about yoga and it's overlap with transcendental meditation this last week. And I just thought yoga it sounds like yogurt kind of sounds like, you know, uh, you know, what could be so yogi the bear? I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's all that big of a deal. Um but a couple things started to tip me off that there might be some concern. One was Al Mohler wrote an article in 2010 where he interviewed a yoga, a yoga lady who wrote a book. And then he offered some critiques of yoga, how that it doesn't match with the Christian worldview because it's intricately tied to a Hindu worldview. And so he, he, he offered some warnings about yoga. He said after that article, they got thousands of letters and he's never been so harshly critiqued on anything he's ever said on his radio program or in his writing. We're talking about, think about all the stuff that Al Mohler says and writes about. This is the biggest topic that he's ever been critiqued on. And so his staff, they were just swamped trying to respond to all these letters and reading through them. Then he wrote a follow-up article giving 10, reason, 10 things he learned from his critique of yoga. The first thing he said is, if you critique yoga, people are going to respond. The fifth thing that he said is out of all the thousands of letters they received, not one gave a theological response to his critique of yoga. 
all of the responses were basically like, yoga has helped me. It's, it's reduced my stress. It's, it's brought, brought me closer to Christ. How dare you critique yoga? There wasn't any theological response. So that tipped me off. I'm kind of like, okay, well, maybe Al Mohler's out there. But then a, uh, a few weeks later, a, hin- a, a yoga scholar writes a follow-up article and says, I agree with Al Mohler. This is a Hindu yoga scholar and says, Al Mohler has it right. You cannot divorce yoga from its uh, Hindu roots or its monistic roots. Westerners that are trying to, to divorce the two have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, in fact, he uses an example. He says, folks in India are looking at the United States, seeing 20 million people involved in yoga. It would be, us, it would be like us looking at India and saying, 20 million, uh, 20 million people in India are getting baptized and partaking of communion. That'd be the equivalent. <clears throat> and so when they see a 20 million of us doing yoga, they're like, wow, can't believe there's so many people in America that are now Hindu. The third thing that tipped me off is John MacArthur has a little debate on CNN, of all places, with an emergent pastor named Doug Paget on Christian yoga. And, and Doug Paget, anything that comes out of the emergent church, I'm already going, shaking my head going, okay. Something's wrong here. So MacArthur and Doug Paget are debating on CNN about the use of yoga. And Doug Paget says all of the things that we would be worried about. Yoga has, it brings us closer to God. It's, it's a way to, we want to, in our spirituality, we have a joining of the mind and the body. And so we come and we practice this. And it's, it's helped a lot of people reduce stress. It's helped them in their life. And MacArthur comes back on and says, I need to respond to that. How does the Bible say that we reduce stress? If you want to curl yourself into a pretzel and exercise, that's one thing. But why would we borrow an ancient heretical practice from a false religion, apply it to ourselves and and, and use it somehow to get closer to God? Because there is nothing in the Bible anywhere close to that. So all that to say, um, I had a little shift in my opinions this week on that topic. I encourage you to research it for yourself. Al Mohler, John MacArthur, um, a Hindu scholar. And then I'm driving home and my daughter tells me, hey, everybody's doing the yoga challenge. I'm like, what's a yoga challenge? She goes, it's on YouTube. Everybody's doing it. She lists many of her friends that are all doing the yoga challenge. And then I find out, I don't even know if I say this. Well, let's just say that one of my children in my household was doing cosmic yoga. It's on YouTube. Anybody ever heard of cosmic yoga? It's a little, it's like a little cartoon for kids that basically teaches them the, the inter- introduction to yoga. Yeah, it's cosmic yoga. It's kind of like, it's almost like a PBS type thing to uh, just basically teach kids the basic essence of yoga. And, and the more I'm reading about it, and I'm, I'm going over here uh, I just want to encourage you guys to check it out for yourself. It doesn't seem like this is a practice that's merely just for exercise. Yoga comes part and parcel with meditation. If you're not meditating, you're not doing yoga. And, and the meditation aspect of yoga is to be, is a concern. And even the exercises themselves, they're not just, you're not just putting yourself into random shapes. <laughs> Uh, the Hindus all know what those random shapes mean and signify and so on. You can research it for yourself. Anyway, you guys might want to tar and feather me now, but that's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So Kim's talking about her daughter doing some yoga and her athletics, then going to India and seeing what it really means, come back saying, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. Can I do some alternative? I've heard similar stories. Moses just got, Moses Tate just got back from China and he was just saying, you guys have no idea. You know, if, if you think you're somehow divorcing yoga, it is a religious practice that was brought over um, to the U.S. The Beatles had a big part of it. Interesting. You've got Dr. Peter Jones on the one hand that's talking about this monism, and then the Beatles are the ones that brought a lot of this stuff over to the U.S. Yeah, final comment, Allison. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. praying to your dead relative i know that fits within the buddhist system i don't know i'm not after, ask me this next week because i'm studying hinduism this week i'm not sure if if in the hindu system there is a praying to their dead relatives not sure uh there is a thing so called yoga flying however uh you guys could check that out anybody ever seen the yoga flying yeah it's they basically hop because they're expecting one day they're going to get to the third level of le levitation uh, Marish, the, the Marishi, who came over in the 1960, early 1960s, basically he wants to build 3,000 palaces. And if we can get a critical mass that is 1% of the world's population to do transcendental meditation and do yoga levitation, then we'll bring world peace to the whole world. That's the ultimate goal of transcendental meditation, is to get everybody to levitate. And it's, it's really sad to see these people hopping around on mattresses at a university campus <laughs> for a class. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. You are a holy God, and you are God, and we are not. And when we look at your word, while there are certain things from one perspective that could make us uncomfortable, we see that you're the Lord of history. You're the one that looks out and sees righteousness and unrighteousness. You're the one that ultimately has the right to bring judgment, to bring mercy. And, uh, and we thank you for your wisdom. Uh, you are God. We are not. We pray that you continue to help us learn from these wonderful texts of Scripture. Help us to be able to look out into our world and to think about our world through this lens, of, of, uh, through the proper glasses of the Bible. And uh, to not be tricked by any of the, uh, the false teaching that is all around us. And we pray for our, the generation rising up, that you'd especially help them to stand in a world that seems to be darkening. Uh, but we're thankful that the light will shine even more brightly. And ultimately, you are the, win, the winner in the end, in Christ's name. Amen.